The following Dharma talk was given for the Insight Meditation Community of Charlottesville, Virginia. Please visit our website at imeditation.org. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. Muatasa Bagoatu Arahatu Samasambutasa Muatasa Bagoatu Arahatu Samasambutasa Umbudang Damang Sangang Namasami Well, what I'd, what I'd like to do this evening is uh, spend a little bit of the time during this talk to give you just a little bit of an overview of some of the uh, salient uh, features of my life journey and use that as a springboard for the theme of the talk this night, which is whole life path. Um, at the ripe old age of 17, I was introduced to the Dhamma. And that happened at the University of California at Santa Cruz. And I still, to this day, you know, all these many, many years later, I remember being in the lecture hall of the university, sitting on the edge of my seat, and, and feeling like somebody had put a, uh, a match on a bonfire that was doused with kerosene. You know, I just felt ignited, completely ignited with the possibility of giving my life to awakening. And, and so from the first week of that class, it was really clear to me that my life was going to be focused on uh, spirituality. And within a month of that class, in October of 1979, I had a vision of being a nun. Which, you know, coming from a Jewish family in Southern California, like there's absolutely no context for that. You know, it's not part of our culture. There's no reference or framework. I didn't know any nuns. Certainly didn't know any Buddhist nuns. I had no clue whatsoever what it meant, what it was like to live like, or, you know, or even where to find them. So not hearing me. If I speak up a bit louder, is it better? Yeah, okay, great. So that began an inquiry process and started the process of me going on intensive 10-day retreats and having a daily practice and being absolutely gung-ho. And, you know, the, the teachings that I received or what I was told, what I understood, was that somehow if we meditated enough and lived by the Eightfold Noble Path and there was sufficient insight, then that would be the causes and the for the ripening of insight, and in the ripening of insight, there would be no suffering. So it's like, sign me up, you know? I was in 100%, maybe 200%. You know, everything that I had, I was focused on that. So it was from the beginning, you know, that it was determined like that. And so, you know, Every year I went on intensive retreats. I had a strong daily practice and eventually I ended up in the monastery where it was clear to me that the monastic life was what the Buddha intended, which was a, 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 a very powerful vehicle for awakening. 
And because my life was organized around the principle of awakening, for me that was the single thing that was important to me. There wasn't really anything else that was more important to me than that. You know? Then I thought, well, you know, that's what the Buddha said. That if you're really interested in awakening, then what's really important is to ordain, because the ordained life is the best path for that. So I, I went to the monastery, and, and I was really surprised how hard it was. You know, I was arrogant enough to assume that my practice had some insight in it and that I should be fine. You know, the monastic life is the best path. You'd think it would be a lot easier. Well, it was actually a lot harder. And it took a long time for me to understand some of the reasons why it was harder, but it was complicated what was going on in the monastery. And certainly part of it was my own, you know, coming from a culture of privilege and all of that and not knowing really how to live in community and the kind of rough edges that get knocked off and the challenge from being an independent Western woman to being in a culture where there was all kinds of values and deferences in ways that really um, were not familiar to me. And some of them were healthy part of community living and some of them were what we were inheriting from an Asian form and trying to kind of make sense out of it or just feel the impact of it. And many things happened, and some of them tremendous joy and blessings, and also some of them just phenomenally challenging, just incredibly challenging. So after a period of time, I left England, and I was living in the bush of Australia. And it was the first time that I'd left the monastery, and I was as a, you know, in a context where I wasn't in a m monastic setting. And I was living in the, this uh, remote hermitage in, in a national park. And I have always had a thing for nature. You know, for me, nature is like a coming home place. You know, when I'm in a wilderness place, I feel naturally very peaceful and, and comfortable and, and at home. And even though this was a foreign nature, I'd never been to Australia before, eventually I began to get a feeling of welcome. You know, that the sense that the land was, was welcoming me. And then in that welcome, I had a sense of safety. And in that safety, I was just tremendously surprised that things began to open up in my practice that I had not seen before. And at that point, I'd been meditating for 20 years. So it was a surprise to me that 20 years of meditation practice, and there were things that I did not have access to. I didn't have access to certain fears, I didn't have access to certain patterns of anger, I didn't have access to the self-hatred that was underneath all of this and how it was fueling my system. And so not only did I not have access to it, but it wasn't resolving itself just by witnessing it. So it was in a context, that context, where I thought, well, what's needed is some parallel practices that are going to help support. So I did therapy. So in the wilderness of Australia, I was doing Jungian analysis making pilgrimage to Sydney in order to work with this fabulous Jungian, absolutely fabulous, to get another way of holding perspective on some of the stuff that meditation by itself wasn't helping me sort out. And so I was, I was both um, humbled and awe-inspired by the impact of being able to do that work. And so that began a process of looking at parallel paths and parallel practices to
to see if I could bring more health into my mind-body system and understand some of the things that weren't rele releasing or resolving by meditation alone. And whether it was ignorance, arrogance, or wisdom, there was some insight that I had that doing more of the same was not going to yield a different result. It wasn't that I needed to do the meditation harder or more dedicated or more diligently. It was what I needed was a different way of focusing my attention. So part of the challenge that I was navigating, that we were all navigating in England, was the complexity of, a, of an Asian form that had a, quite a significant bias towards the male and the female monastic members and the phenomenal impact that it had on the nuns. So in my personal experience, the real tragedy of patriarchy and misogyny is not the direct harm that I was experiencing from the monks, but the chaos that was created in the nuns' community with the women in the way that they related to each other. And for myself, it was just um, quite um, an ongoing effort to meet it, to respond to it, and to find ways to create the holding that we can begin to address some of this, what was going on, name it, and find skillful ways of dealing with it. And gratefully, um, the nuns had the interest, the curiosity, and the, the wherewithal to do really significant work in this area. And, became a lot more um, coherent and cohesive and uh, trusting of each other, honoring of each other than they, there was when I first arrived in the monastery. And so for me, it was hard won but really significant growth of a women's community against some significant odds. And then <clears throat> at a critical point, of the nuns coming into a place of confidence with themselves, then there was a massive patriarchal retrenchment and policies were instituted and things were said that put the nuns in a position of powerlessness and deference to the monks in a way that um, fractured and splintered the community and, and more than half of the nuns left and of the nuns that left, more than half of them disrobed within a year. And nothing really was ever resolved in the community about what happened and why it happened or the impact it had. And I left. I was one of the first ones that left. And was like, wow, you know, this is a Buddhist monastery with people that are committed to harmlessness and everyone is supposed to be awakening. What has happened? <laughs> you know, how do you wrap your mind around this? I mean, really? Uh, really? You know, 2008, really? And so one of the philosophical frameworks that I had been really, that I had been interested in studying was uh, Ken Wilber's integral theory in the process of, of uh, these different developments, which I've also seen with other uh, psychotherapeutic models. So the Maslow's hierarchy of needs and the process of development and maturation. So what I began to understand, both in terms of my own personal experience and what I was observing in my community and in the teachers around me and my brothers and sisters around me, is that there are actually um, distinct paths. So the path of maturation is not automatically guaranteed by the path of awakening. 
And you can have stages of insight and a tremendous clarity of the nature of what is timeless and pervasive from any stage of maturation. But the awakening by itself does not necessitate the maturation process escalating. Now, when you look at these different models, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and Wilbur's integral uh, philosophy and these other systems that talk about maturation, <clears throat> what was revealing to me is a, <clears throat> a synthesis that I've come to, which is that maturation is the process of navigating our needs initially, naming them, knowing them, and navigating them. And then the second stage is to do that without it being at somebody else's expense. And then the third stage is to learn and understand diverse people's needs and to be able to help advocate or at least be allies for them. And in this pathway of maturation, it, is, it takes like several levels. Like the first level is just understanding our physical needs for food and for warmth. For shelter. The next need is like around touch, and the third need is around autonomy and power, and the, the fourth level of need is around uh, a structure and rules and belonging, and the fifth level is around uh, uh, I'm not remembering the fifth level. The sixth level is around learning how to be in harmony with different people's diverse needs. And the seventh level is around wholeness and wanting to see the bigger picture of things. And it isn't until the sixth level of maturation where there really is much interest in other people's needs. You know, it doesn't really register as something that is of anybody's concern. And so it all of a sudden began to make sense to me why you can have a Buddhist monastery with very wise elders who do things that are so harmful to certain members of the community because their maturation is at a level that is not yet interested in a diverse people's needs. And so <clears throat> this path, which I came into the understanding was that if we meditated enough, if we practiced enough, if we had enough insight into the nature of the mind, that is where all suffering would end. And while that is true in terms of the ultimate nature, it's not true in terms of the suffering that comes from relational dynamics and differences of maturity and needing to to advocate for different people's needs. So in all of the Buddhist communities that I have known or been a part of or witnessed, the main recourse that we have is to go back to the practice to support us, when in fact what is needed is a path that teaches us the different levels of maturation and supports us to move through them. Not at the expense of awakening, but in support of it. And at this current time in history, with what we're navigating politically, with climate, with economics, with, with massive issues that are looming all around us, what I see is that it isn't only 
the individual's capacity to know the nature of the ultimate nature, what is timeless and what is pervasive. But what is needed, certainly that is a critical part of being able to keep things in perspective and not get so shaken by the tremendous things that are shifting and changing all over the place, you know, and to give us ballast for the kinds of challenges that we're having to navigate. But when our uh, development is at a level of maturity that is not able to understand and address diverse people's needs, then we are handicapped. We are not as capable of supporting the kinds of growth and the kinds of, uh, of, of change that is needed in this world. Now, let me backtrack a bit into my own personal journey and tie in another thing. So we've got maturation and awakening as two parallel but separate and distinct paths that require or are supported by specific tools and different emphasis in practice. But what I also discovered in my own forays is that the path of healing, you know, working with trauma, understanding attachment strategies, and learning how to move from insecure attachment patterns where we don't feel like people have got our back. We don't feel that we are safe to go out and explore. We don't feel that when we come back, we will be seen and celebrated. To moving into a way where we can trust that that is in fact the case. That the combination of trauma strategies, I mean trauma activation and attachment strategies had a very interesting impact because both of them set us up for fear. And the fear that comes with those for me was reverberating against the fear that naturally arises in the process of letting go. And in this natural process of letting go, the fear that arises is something that needs to be learned to be tolerated so that the mind can relax any grip of ego identification and rest into a, the experience of awareness that is not rooted and located in me, I am, this is who and where and what I am. But the healing, if we have not done the healing to a sufficient degree, then the contraction that reverberates against trauma and the contraction that reverberates against the fear of annihilation that comes from insecure attachment is that keeps us from relaxing into that experience of letting go and consolidating around the sense of me chewing on my problem forever because that is easier and feels more familiar and more safe than letting go into what is unknown. So it isn't just that healing is important to heal. Healing is actually critical to support our ability to access and stabilize the depth that the Dhamma is asking us to realize. And yet, in all of the years that I have been hearing Dharma talks, 
Not once ever have I heard a Dharma talk that put these things together like that. And so in addition to awakening, which is absolutely critical, there needs to be the path of maturation and the supports and the understanding of the, of the vitality, the significance of us doing our healing work. Now, Sharon mentioned that we met on an Inside Dialogue retreat. And for me too, it is a joy to be here, to be with dear friends. And what we can learn from Sangha is that in addition to being able to see things directly with our own observation, we can see the impact of collaborative processing, of being with another person, helping to witness and to see through things with a, with a, a shared field of awareness. And how sometimes that can be tremendously supportive in our own insight. So engagement, engagement with our own mind-body experience, engagement with partners in a collaborative process of witnessing, engagement in the community to learn how to mirror for each other, show up for each other, speak the truth, engaging in a way that uh, supports us to grow, and then bringing the depth of all of this into some of the complex issues that we're navigating in the world. I was delighted today when Sharon was telling me that there is a group of like 40 people that meet regularly to speak about white privilege, awakening white, and how important that is in this world that we begin to notice and look at the stuff that because of our privilege, we do not have to look at. And yet, making the efforts to engage in that way then opens us up to a whole range of information and the reality of large numbers of people who do not share white privilege with us and the impact on them as a result. Not only that they don't have white privilege, but they're dealing another deal. So a path that supports awakening and maturation, healing and engagement is a path that supports a whole life coming into a full and whole life. And that full and whole life at this juncture of time in our history is critical. It's absolutely critical. It's critical for our own sense of health and well-being. It's critical in our communities where there are increasing issues of diversity. And it's critical in our world because it is with this, it is with all of these, that we are the most resourced to meet the challenges of our world and to find ways forward that something sustainable and in the benefit of the most numbers of people 
a way forward can be found. You know, one of the things that happened for me when I was in the Australian bush was my motivation for practice shifted. It shifted from, I just wanted to get out of suffering. Like, just get me out of here. You know, just, I want out as fast as possible. That was like my motivation from the time I began. To how can I shift and meet suffering? How can I be in a way of respect with what was arising? And that was part of the catalyst for all of the changes that happened after that. And one of the things that was very interesting to me is like, you know, for myself, I don't compartmentalize my body to say that some parts of my body belong and other parts of my body don't belong. It all belongs, you know? So if my right hand is hurting, I'll do what I can to fix it. If my left hand is hurting, I'll do what I can to fix it because it's all part of the whole body. It all belongs. But when I was practicing in that way in Australia, in the bush, where there was just an interest to meet what was arising, rather than get out of suffering, that was supported by affirming the bodhisattva vows, then I began to notice that after a while, it wasn't just me feeling like I was in safe place and me feeling like nature was welcoming and friendly. But it was about the sense of me dissolving. And what was left was just nature. There wasn't this massive divide between inside and outside. There was just nature. And nature was arising. And as nature was arising and known and seizing, there was no sense of where the care would stop because it didn't belong. There was no edge of belonging. And that not having an edge of belonging in nature also allowed me to not have an edge of belonging in my own experience. And that was the context where some of these things that I had not been able to have access to before opened up. So it was because of my own longing to see that everything belonged, that it was part of my ability to be present with stuff that was so painful for me before. When we see that some of the things that we're facing in the world right now are related to our own liberation. It's a totally different motivation than if we're showing up just because we want to help somebody else. So in my life, I started with this fierce aspiration for awakening. And it was the primary motivation for the better part of two and a half decades. No, three and a half decades. 
And a few years ago, my motivations shifted. And in addition to awakening, there was the longing for wholeness and aliveness. The longing to actually have all of the parts be in, in congruence, to, to have access to all of my own life force. And so certainly over these many years, there have been times, there have been challenges, and I've had doubts about being a monastic. But I never had clarity that it no longer served me. And so about maybe six weeks ago, again, there was a question, as does this monastic life still serve my aspiration? And when I asked myself, what's my aspiration? And I recognized, well, my aspiration is awakening, aliveness, and wholeness. And I could see the ways in which, for myself, there's a holding back in some ways that I don't have full access to my own life force. Then there was the recognition, no, this does no longer serve me. So 28 years ago, I came to the monastery in England. This is 26 years I have lived as a nun. And when I return from this trip and go back to California a few days later, I will relinquish the bhikkhuni training in order to more fully live a life of awakening that is also imbued with wholeness and aliveness. So that as I live it, I can also speak to it, embody it, and teach it, present it for others. And so it's a very rich time. It's a remarkable time for me right now. It's a blessed time. It's filled with all kinds of feelings, sadness and joy and excitement and overwhelm and curiosity. grief. Letting go of any sense of this has been more than half of my life. <coughs> and opening up to what's next. And it comes because of seeing that the path of wholeness is an important path to cultivate, even though that path is not specifically delineated in the Buddhist teachings. In fact, there isn't any traditional system. There are hardly any schools on this planet right now that combine the deep and profound teachings of awakening with a path of maturation and supported with engagement and understanding the importance of healing. And yet that has been my life experience. That is what I've seen in myself and what it has been I have observed in communities and in individuals around me. And that's what I feel called to support. 
to speak to, to advocate to, to create courses for, to create retreats that, 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 uh, that encourage. Because for me, this level of wholeness that includes this whole spectrum allows a level of relaxing in my own skin and a confidence that simply did not arise just with focusing on awakening. And a path of maturation, as significant and as important as it is, does not have the depth of teachings that are timeless, of what is there when everything else falls apart, what is there before anything arises, who we are before there is any conditioning. So gratefully, the Awakening Truth website has been redesigned to support online courses. And I'm just in the process, have put together like 60 videos that are instructional about a whole life path with the intention of supporting more uh, access and more availability for people who are interested. So stay tuned. <laughs> so I just want to close this talk with asking you to consider in your own experience the relevance of this. You know, how this might be true in your own personal experience. If you notice or have known communities where you have observed places where there could be profound wisdom and maybe some lack of capacity to understand other people's needs and be allies and advocate for them? I see snickers. I see a few smiles. There's a small resonance with a few of you that this might perhaps be the case. And when we look at the global problems that we are dealing with right now, complex, absolutely complex, that is going to require as many of us as possible to stay grounded in pervasive truth and in maturity to hold open the space for a way forward to emerge. So I'd like to close this evening talk with a just short meditation, uh, uh, loving kindness and sharing blessings. And so again, sitting in a way that feels comfortable and relaxed and easeful, allowing yourself to become aware of anything that you're feeling, resonance or dissonance, excitement or daunting, 
joy, excitement, or concern, whatever is present, allow it into awareness. And just connect for a moment with your own aspiration. What is it? What do you want in life? What do you want for yourself? What do you want for your family? What do you want for the world? And to know that aspiration is one of the treasures that we have. And to bring to this aspiration a, a tremendous sense of tenderness and care and love, to fill it up, to support it, to water it, to protect it, to nourish it, to safeguard it. This warmth, allowing that warmth, that care, that kindness to spread throughout our whole body, our heart, our back, our limbs, our face, our feet, and our hands. to spread into all of the things that we think that we are, all of the experience that we have had, all of our hopes and our dreams, all of the people that we care about and know and treasure, the ones that we don't know. and letting it share and spread into the people who we are quite convinced are some of the sources of the suffering and the pain and the problems of this world. So that all beings everywhere can be filled with care and kindness and warmth and know what love is. And just take a moment and consider the many, many, many different options you had for how you spent the evening tonight. And that everybody here decided to come and to meditate together and to listen to the Dhamma together and to consider and to share with friends and community together. And as we tap into the richness of an evening like this and the blessing field that something like this creates, we have a treasure trove that we can share through our intention. Just like sprinkling gold dust into the air or mana into the water or fertilizer on the soil, or food for anybody or any being that eats and needs nourishment. We can take the blessings of our efforts. We can take the blessings of the Dhamma. We can take the blessings of our practice and share it with all beings everywhere. That all beings everywhere have access 
to teachings that awaken, have friendship and community that support them, have the tools and the resource to heal, and understand the importance of maturation. <laughs>